0: This is our last Your Amigos podcast on our world tour. We sort of said the last one, I think, was the last one, but this is genuinely the <laughs> last one. <laughs> this, uh, this is unique, this podcast, because it's the only one we've had to do twice. Uh, it's ever? A biomark- is it ever. It's, the, it's yeah. a biomarker session in kidney cancer with Dave McDermott. Um, part one was like, uh, well, it was a bit like Hamlet scene five, sorry, act five, scene five, uh, which uh, was uh, very chaotic. And as you know, um, there were lots of bodies on the floor at the end. I think think there were parallels between the two. Um, So, um, David, this is a second opportunity to uh, to uh, cover yourself in glory um, with biomarkers and kidney cancer. Uh, the, The first question I've got for you as it currently stands is just talk to me about from a community oncology perspective in metastatic or indeed in post-operative adjuvant uh, therapy, are there any biomarkers that doctors should be using on their patients?
1: So the short answer to that question is no, uh, nor are there any on the immediate horizon. Um, That's in part because kidney cancer is a very complex heterogeneous disease for which it's hard to do tissue-based studies. Also, we're starting to combine multiple approaches, so it's hard to come up with single agent predictors of response. It's almost impossible to do it when you get into combination approaches. So I don't think we are close to biomarkers in for guiding practice, but I do think we have a much better understanding of kidney cancer biology and um, what drives a response uh, to immune therapy, for example, and how we might select patients slightly better in the future, but more importantly, develop new therapies in the future. Um, David, it, just before this... you go, Brian,
0: before you go, Brian, I've got one question, and then you can ask those questions. Just before you get there, many people, and in fact, some people in the European Guidelines Committee have said to me um, that ipinivo in the PDL one biomarker positive population has got a hazard ratio of 045 mm-hmm. That looks like a pretty good biomarker. Why aren't we using PDL1 biomarkers with ipilimumab?
1: If you would <laughs> like to enrich for responders, you certainly could use PDL1. But there are some patients who are negative that would would respond, and um, you'd be excluding those folks from therapy. I think you can make an argument that if if you're trying to avoid the cost of ipi. Um, from a toxicity perspective that maybe you want to use this for enrichment. But I do not think that the studies that are done with pdl one and kidney cancer were done robustly enough to help them guide practice. Um, there's just not enough tissue. There's not enough samples. Um, the biomarker itself is not reproducible enough. I don't think it's ready for prime time. I know why people want to use it, but I don't think it's ready.
2: So that was, yeah, I was going to ask about pdl one Do you think pdl one is <clears throat> going to be a component of biomarkers in the future? Or is it just sort of a red herring and it enriches, but it's never really going to be robust for clinical use?
1: I, I think what's going to, we're t- sort of talking about two different things. I think if we're, if we're thinking it's going to be a companion diagnostic for which there will be a test and an approval based, you know, on a subpopulation, no. I don't right. think we're going to go there. But I do think what we're going to be seeing in the next round of um, tissue analysis for patients in general, I mean, you've seen how these foundation medicine platforms, for example, have included things like tumor mutational burden Mm -hmm. as as a routine test, even though it might be only useful in a couple of different places. I think we're going to see a similar thing for RNA um, expression which is going to become increasingly routine in, um, as part of an analysis of any patient who might be a candidate for immune therapy. So you're going to get a signature on a patient's tumor um, that's going to suggest, for example, that it's a T effector high, which is obviously a similar population to the pd one positive population. You're going to have that information. You're going to be able to act on it if you want, but it's not going to be a companion diagnostic Okay. In kidney cancer, I don't
2: think. So let's let's go back and talk about those signatures. You've done some great signature work, despite Tom and I trying to stop you most of the way. We you, did our best. We, we did our best. Uh, so why don't you just give a brief summary of sort of Emotion 150, the trial in brief, but but more importantly, the signatures, which you're sort of alluding to. And, and what, we, what do they tell us and what don't they tell us maybe as of today? So the Emotion
1: 150 study w- was a study... That contained several firsts, um, meaning first time not just in kidney cancer, but first time in almost any cancer that I'm aware of, where you took a relatively well sized randomized prospective trial and tried to connect tumor biology with outcome in the setting of an immune checkpoint inhibitor combined with the targeted therapy. So that had not been done before. We were not trying to develop companion diagnostics, but we did learn a significant amount about kidney cancer uh, biology and how it might predict for outcomes, not just with immune checkpoint blockade, but with angiogenesis inhibitors as well. In fact, in some ways, we came up with better predictors of response to VEGF TKI with sunitinib in that trial than we did for immune therapy. And that me of the arms of the trial, uh, the, uh, David. The three arms were the yep. former standard, sunitinib the PD-L1 inhibitor, atezolizumab, and the combination of uh, bevacizumab, atezolizumab, which we had hoped would be superior to sinitinib. Um, and we were able to show that it, it, with an RNA signature um, that predicted for angiogenesis inhibition, that patients were more likely to respond to sinitinib. Those that had a higher T-effector signature were more likely to benefit from either of the um, PD-L1-containing Arms, we thought we might have learned something about how uh, myeloid um, infiltration of the tumor might be immunosuppressive, which limited the response to single agent atezolizumab that might have been able to be overcome with bevacizumab, a combination. But that obviously is something that's of of more far more hypothesis generating than anything else. But those signatures have been looked at in subsequent larger studies like your. Um, phase three, emotion 151, and they've held up to a large extent, meaning while not perfect, they do seem to enrich in larger data sets for similar stories about who benefits from immune checkpoint blockade, who benefits from VEGF blockade. Um, And so you get a flavor that certain biologies are more prone to respond to certain therapies. um, And you've got a sense of from that work about what targets might need to hit, you might need to attack, to sort of overcome resistance to immune checkpoint blockade. So for example, the myeloid compartment is, a, is an area with, with where multiple investigators are trying multiple different approaches to decrease their likely immunosuppressive contribution to an immune response. And how how might that be overcome with novel strategies? So I think that the trial was interesting it was, um, it, it's become a standard way we now analyze tumors, um, and in, in that it made a contribution, but it did not bring us closer to either a remarkable regimen, since the clinical result of the phase three trial was somewhat underwhelming, or a uh, predictive biomarker that could be used in practice. It taught us a lot about the disease, but it didn't impact the way we treat patients enough.
0: David, talk to me about, there was some work in that paper around PBRM1, around indels and tumor mutational burden. Firstly, why doesn't tumor mutational burden seem to work in kidney cancer in the same way as it does in bladder, lung, and breast and other tumor types? Are you, uh, are you, do you know much about, about that?
1: Um, the, well, I think the short answer uh, to the lack of connection between mutations and outcome, <laughs> at least in kidney cancer, is to, generally kidney tumors are not highly mutated. So it's hard to show a connection when most of the tumors do not have a high uh, burden. What drives the the tumors are um, a relatively small number of mutations. For example, the VHL tumor suppressor gene loss is a big driver of human kidney cancer, but they don't accumulate a ton of mutations over time the way some of these more environmentally driven uh, tumors like melanoma and lung cancer are uh, driven. Uh, That said, what brings the kidney tumors, while they don't have lots of mutations, they do have lots of immune cells. So, if you were to rank tumors um, by immune cell infiltration, kidney cancer would come up very high on the list. So, the question becomes what's driving those immune cells into the tumor? The short answer to that is we do not know, um, but there are some clues. So, for example, endogenous retroviruses have been looked at the, by the group at Vanderbilt and um, our group here at, um, at Harvard. Um, they seem certain ex- expression of endogenous retroviruses in the tumor seems to be associated with higher um, uh, infiltration of immune cells and higher response to PD-1. Um, obviously, that work is at an early stage, but there may be certain factors in the tumor that bring in those immune cells, and we need to figure out what those are uh, and it, it, on, on, on another level, a lot of those immune cells in the tumor we're now learning are pretty exhausted. So they're there, but they're not able to be recovered. Um, it, it, and that process gets worse as the tumor becomes more advanced. So the more advanced in stage, the more those immune cells are not able to be active against the tumor. So we need to understand why that is. And I think through th- through technologies like single cell sequencing Um, you're going to be able to understand that better. And there'll be several papers on that subject uh, coming out in the near future, um, you know, that will help us try to understand not just why those immune cells are there, but how can we reactivate them beyond PD-1 blockade? Because that's obviously not
2: sufficient enough on its own. David, what do you make? There's been some other signature work. And so just for the audience, you know, these signatures are... are or, dif- or RNA-based gene expression. Everybody sort of picks their own set of genes that they think represents angiogenesis or inflammation, et cetera. They're not identical. But I know there was data at ASCO from Checkmate 214, uh, the Javelin groups presented data. Are, are they all saying the same thing? Are, are any of them useful? I mean, I think of 150 as the standard, you know, but I'm biased, but have, have the other gene signature data in kidney cancer, have they contributed anything unique? Maybe is the question.
1: Um, right. So I think if you did a Venn diagram of the major genes that are driving those signatures, I would bet, um, and from part from what I've seen, that though, there's a lot of overlap between the major drivers. So, for example, VEGF expression driving most of the NGO signature, not surprisingly, in um, the NGO high group. Um, you know, CD8 infiltration, PDL1 expression driving a lot of the signature in the T effector high group. Now, there may be differences. Not all of the genes in these signatures are identical, but I think the major ones are probably quite similar. There's no real reason why they wouldn't be. I think right. one of the things that we've lacked is every, getting everyone to put all their cards on the table. Um, that is not always the case when you get these publications. You often get them before these um, drugs are approved, these regimens are approved, so you don't get all the information that you need. Um, We need it all out on the table so we can compare data sets with the clinical activity, and so we can make some conclusions about how overlapping are these different groups, because you may be able to simplify them which would mm-hmm. then allow you to do potentially less expensive assays. Right. So, for example, not doing RNA-seq on, on these tumors, but maybe developing um, in, you know, other approaches with RNA that are less, like nanostring, that are less involved and maybe more reproducible. Right. So I look forward to that.
2: So what's, what's coming in the future then? I mean, we have these signatures. I, I agree with you. I think they've elucidated biology well, but not yet driven clinical practice. TMB doesn't appear to be important. Yeah. You know, I think of kidney cancer as an RNA based disease. It's not a DNA based disease. I don't think there's going to be DNA markers that help us significantly, but, but RNA, yes. But what else is out there? Like what's the next, what needs to be tested in the prospective trials that are ongoing or coming?
1: Well, um, so, right. So I, I, I think, and I don't want to call out too many people but i do think
2: the (laughs) please do we love it with with a purely
1: io strategy so single agent pd1 pd1 plus ctla4 we could i think we could get to a much better place with a biomarker there Mm -hmm. um and we should push to get it um and so for example the checkmate 8y8 study which is single agent versus combo i it would be great to know um or that is that yeah. the same population that benefits from that approach or different? You know, is that trial large enough to answer that question? Is that trial's collection of tissue going to be robust enough um, to answer that question? I don't know, but it, at least get, it's a study design where you could learn something useful. That said, I don't think we're going to come up with a marker that predicts for benefit from PD-1 versus VEGF because you're essentially combining the two, um, you know, dominant Biologies in one therapy and saying sort it out. You know, I don't see that <laughs> happening. I do think there's also a lot of hope for HIF inhibition. Coming up with a marker there for a number of reasons there because you're tar- you're looking for a marker that's in the tumor as opposed right. to the microenvironment, and there may be a, a connection between either VHL mutation, HIF2 expression, pBRM1 status, things that are more. Although the HIF story is obviously harder, but Some of those things are more easy to come up with assays for, um, and that would be very helpful because one of the things I would love to see is the HIF inhibitor not just get approved uh, in our lifetime, but move up to the early into therapy as a single agent, and that's only going to happen in the context of a marker. Um, Uh,
0: David, do you think the HIF biomarkers and the the VEGFTKI biomarkers are going to be the same or different?
1: I think they're going to be very similar. Um, but no one's going to want to develop a VEGF TKI bar marker um, right. because, but they might want to develop one of those for the reason I said, which is not just to bring it up to the frontline metastatic, but potentially even bring it to the adjuvant setting um, where it, where it might, you could imagine someone on a, um, a HIF inhibitor <laughs> for several years, Well, right. you can't do that with a VEGF drug.
0: David, my last question, and Brian's got a last question. The last two questions of our world tour <laughs> My last question: We started with Danny Heng in Calgary. We didn't actually sign Peter, uh, Peter Black, but we we moved to Danny Heng pretty soon after Peter. We did a drive across the mountains; it was beautiful. Um, and one of the things that Danny talked to us about was the IMDC score, and that is the biomarker we currently use and we select therapy that way. One of the questions which I'm frequently asked is: Under the bonnet of the IDMC score, what is the difference between the good risk population? and the poorest population from a biology
1: perspective? I, you know, I don't, once again, I'm hoping no one's listening to this podcast. I think that <laughs> don't worry about I, that. I think it's there's... very few, it's very few. I think the IMDC criteria is helpful and should be built upon, but it is a, it, it's not going to be helpful in the era of immune checkpoint blockade as first-line treatment. It was, it's helpful for single when single-agent VEG-FTKIs were dominant. It was, it's useful. It's not, that's a world that's gone. Um, so we need to update the IMDC criteria for the new world that we, we live in because <laughs> the patients who have IMDC poor risk but respond um, to checkpoint blockade are going to have tremendous survivals. Um, we, de- right. we need a different criteria. Um, we, need a
0: bio, we need a biomarker, thank you. We don't criteria. Yeah. I mean, my, we don't okay. need criteria. We just need a. Biomarker. All right,
1: you're going to take it a step further, and that's fine with me. <laughs> I'm all I'm all for it. I am all for it. But 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 the larger point is not so much about their criteria, which has been very helpful for, I agree. and all the rest. But it is we shouldn't be making, in my opinion, we should not be making <laughs> clinical decisions in 2020 um, based on those criteria. We just should not be, Um, you know, and it's my mission to try to get us out of that thinking because it's going to mean that certain patients are not going to get certain therapies because of a, you know, because of a prognostic criteria that is out of date and uh, was just done for the purposes of the study. It's not as relevant to clinical practice anymore, I don't think, but that's probably heretical and I'll be flogged for it.
0: David, my, my phone's about to run out of battery. Hey, can hold on. I got to close it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I only then, have two go, comments
2: go. to close. Yeah, One is that, yeah, yeah. Tom, I think that was the first time anybody's used the word bonnet in a podcast. Excellent. And I think David did much better this time. I, mean, I really was terrific,
0: it. David. It really was it really terrific. Unbelievable. It really was. Well, that's really lovely. Was. I'm glad to hear <laughs> yeah. that it. Was more, it was more a
1: Midsummer's Night Dream than having <laughs> Okay, good. Well, I, I think ending the series of podcasts with your phone running out of batteries is like it's perfect. Been. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> so, to me. That's so usually David, how we begin
2: so meetings. But, yes. All right, thanks, guys.
0: See you soon. All right, be well.